Let me ask you a question. How many of you, well, let me, let me back up. You know, when, when you're in a position where you can preach the word, you know, basically you sit down and say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And one of the hardest things is when God puts you in a position where he gives you something, this is what I want you to do, sometimes it puts you in an uncomfortable position. And I have learned that I have learned that it is at the cutting edge in our walk with God where he leaves you in a position where you learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. In fact, I have learned that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. <laughs> That's what I've learned. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come visit me in Cambodia sometime. But I want to I back up a little bit. And I want to give you some background about, uh, just a little bit about me. I'm not going to share my testimony. But I want you to know, when I was a kid, my dad was so, I mean, if you made the smallest mistake, you paid for it on the spot. And sometimes he wouldn't even tell us what we had done wrong. He just hit us. And then when you you hit the ground, you're, you're trying to figure out what happened to you, and as you're laying there, he'd be explaining what you did wrong. And so you just, his, his anger was so volatile that we were so afraid of him that we learned when he called us to stand just out of striking distance. So when he would call us and say, get over here, you kind of knew where the, you were within arm shot. So you kind of just knew right where to stop and never got too close. Sometimes the mistakes were small. You, you left dishes in the sink. You didn't clean them after yourself. Uh, sometimes he would inspect the dishes if they were dirty. Uh, I remember one time he was mad because we didn't empty the garbage. He literally turned the light on in the middle of the night and emptied the garbage on top of us while we were in our bed. So we were always on edge and doing everything we could to avoid the smallest mistake. Now, you can imagine what's going through my mind when one day my dad handed me a 12-gauge shotgun. Double barrel, 12 gauge. He said, here, son, this is yours. I think I was 12. And so he gave me a couple boxes of shotgun shells, and I was excited. I loved to shoot guns. We had lots of them. And I thought, this is my gun, and I'm going to just cherish this thing. And so I decided that uh, when the time came, I was going to take my gun out, and I was going to go hunting. And I had my dog, and and I thought, this is going to be the best day. We're going to go out and have a great time. And so... I got so excited, I loaded my shotgun, snapped it shut, and I, I, got out, I didn't get six feet out the door, and I had already loaded my gun. And we lived way out in the country on 11 acres, and, and then there was just farmland around us for miles, so there really wasn't any homes per se. Anyway, um, so I got my shotgun, I got my dog, and I'm all excited about the fact that I'm going to go hunting, and I was kind of pumping my dog up. His name was Zeke. And I said, Zeke, man, we're going hunting. Man. Zeke, there goes rabbits. And I'm just kind of messing with the dog, and he's all excited, jumping around. And I did not realize or I had forgotten that I had loaded my gun. And just about over there by the corner was my dad's boat. And it was one of those boats where it's, an out, it's, a, it's a nice boat on a trailer, and it's made out of the kind of wood where you don't paint it. It's just you put stain on it. It's like mahogany type thing. And it's a ski boat, and it's an old boat. It's an antique, and it's a very, very nice, expensive boat. And I happened to have the shotgun pointed this way, and I was like, Click, I pulled it, boom, and I shot in the direction of that boat with a 12-gauge shotgun fully loaded with, with bird shot. And I, when I realized, I was like, I, I literally said, oh, please, God, don't let me have hit that boat. And I jumped down, ran over there, and got up close, and there was a piece of plastic that was covering the boat. And I looked at the plastic, and there was probably, it looked like 10,000 holes in the side of that plastic. I'm sure there wasn't that many. But when I lifted the plastic up, the entire boat was, the side of the boat was solid holes where I had shot my dad's boat. I really thought, I will die. My dad will kill me for this. If he beats me for leaving dishes in the sink, and he beats me for saying something inappropriate, and I just shot his boat, I'm going to die. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I will die. 
And I, 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 a moment of terror, I grabbed my pocket knife and I decided I'm going to carve those BBs out of my dad's boat. And I started cutting holes in the side of those boat. And of course, now there's these gaping holes where I had tried to get the BBs out. And a mo- my heart was racing. And I was just thinking, what am I going to do? Think, think, think. There was no solution. I'm, 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 my dad's going to rip my arm off and beat me with the bloody stub. There's nothing else I'm going to do. It's over with. And I, I remember telling myself, I might as well go out and hunt and enjoy my last few hours on this earth. <laughs> and so I just grabbed my gun and I went out and I don't know what happened. I think, I honestly think that God had mercy on me. I must have had the best hunting day of my life or something because I completely forgot I shot my dad's boat. I don't know what happened. It's like God just took it out of my mind. I must have had a great time. I must have shot something because I I got home. I completely forgot about it. Days went by. And when I'm in the shed with my dad, and my dad had this big pole barn, and he's in there working on something, and I happened to cut in, and I was in there doing something. And all of a sudden, he looked over to me. He was looking from his workbench, and he just says to me, Mark, come here a minute. And I had heard that enough times that I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And my mind was racing. Think, think, think. What did I do wrong? I was just, my, my, it was a blank. And in a moment of panic, you got to understand, I was terrified. But I had no idea what I was afraid of. I didn't know what I had done wrong. And my dad, I, and of course I got up close, but I, I stayed far enough away that I would avoid that lethal distance. And I just stood at a distance and he said to me something I will never forget. He said to me, Mark, what did I do to you to make you mad enough that you would shoot my boat? <laughs> That's what he said to me. And I was like, the boat, oh, no, I shot the boat. Uh, and I was just like, and then he said to me, Mark, what happened? And I said, it was an accident, Dad. And he said, okay, that's all I wanted to know. That was it. No death, no tearing off of arms, nothing. No, that's it. I just wanted to know. And I walked out of there thinking, what happened to me? What happened? I get beaten to the point where I'm bloody. For the smallest infraction, I just shot his boat. And all he says is, well, okay, it was an accident. Not long after that, my dad said, I'm going to teach you how to drive a car. And so it's a, uh, an old Ford. It was, oh, actually, it wasn't that old. and It was about a year old and and uh, we had to drive. We, we, our driveway was a long, long driveway. It was probably the length farther than the distance from the front road to, let's see, i got to figure out, from the front road all the way to the back parking lot. And we lived on a really tall hill, so it was a long, sloping driveway to get out to the gravel road. And then you have to drive another mile down the road to get to the mailbox, which, our, which is where the mailman delivered our paper. Dad says, I need you to jump in the car. I think I was uh, maybe 16, honestly, don't remember. He said, I need you to jump in the car and run over and get the paper. So it was in the wintertime, and I jump in the car, and I'm thinking to myself, finally, I have a chance to get and use the car. I drive over, pick up the newspaper, and on the way back, it's late at night, and I'm trying to get up the hill, and there's snow on the, on the driveway. And, so I'm, and my dad had plowed it, so there's big piles of snow on each side of the driveway. And I'm trying to muscle my way to get up this driveway, and I get almost to the top, and the car starts to spin out. The wheels spin. I can't get any farther. Now I have to back down the driveway so I can get another run at it, but it's so dark I can't see behind me. So I open the car door so I can look behind me, and I did not see, pay attention to what I was doing. And as I'm backing down, the snowbank catches the car door. Snap! It pulls the door almost off the car. And now I'm backing down the driveway with the car door embedded in the snowbank as I'm backing up, and it's acting like a snowplow. And it's just, and the door is getting pulled farther and farther beyond where it's supposed to go. And there's no way for me to stop it. I'm backing down the driveway. I end up literally plowing the, the, the driveway with a door. I have to pick the door up just to get it closed. It's so ruined. And I, all I can do is throw myself on the mercy seat and just show up. And t- I actually told mom first because I figured she wouldn't kill me. And I told dad, dad, I, you know, I, this is what happened. She said, go tell your dad. So I had to go tell my dad, dad, I just uh, hooked the door on the snowbank driving down the driveway. And he said, well, what did you do that for? And I'm like, well, it was an accident. Okay. That was it. And it was like, 
my world was upside down. I, I just don't get it. And uh, my mission in life was to avoid mistakes. And when I made big ones, dad didn't care. And if I made small ones, dad would just smack me. When I was in uh, 10th grade, I decided I was too afraid to go on a date. And a young girl, I guess, felt sorry for me and invited me to a dance. It was a, one of those Sadie Hawkins type things. So she said to me, Mark, uh, why don't we go on a date? And she said, I, there's another guy. We can go on a little double date. We'll go to the eat dinner at this girl's house, and then we'll go to the, the dance. Well, the other guy could drive, so he, he said, I'll pick you up at the school. My mom buys me a sweater for the event. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, I was, I was, I was very, I don't know, what do you say? You get a sweater. You just go out. You're going to go on a date. You just get a sweater. That's what my mom did. So we go to this thing, and I'm just nervous, right? Everybody else it looks cool. I got a sweater. To make matters worse, the guy that we're double dating with is the guy, he's the high school stud. He's the guy that grows a beard when he was 12. You know, he's got, he's got muscles. He's a football player. He's got the most beautiful date that there ever existed. She's the cheerleader. And, and he's the guy picking me up. And I'm this skinny little guy with a sweater that no one knows that I have no social skills. The girl that wanted me to go along, of course, I, I'm sure had just felt sorry for me. They pick me up, take me over to this girl's house. The, they they have, a, have a spaghetti. And of no, of absolutely it happens. I'm eating the spaghetti and then slap. I slap myself with the little tiny V where the sweater is. There's a white, or, or now I got spaghetti sauce all over my white shirt. So I'm embarrassed by that. So then I try to rub it off. Now I get a bright, long stain of spaghetti sauce. So the momentum starts to build up in my my body as this is not going to go well. I can sense it. It's going to be a disaster. But I'm trying to convince myself, just get through this. You'll be fine. We get into the car. Oh, then I didn't tell you this. Then she comes out and she's wearing uh, some nice clothes and she says, what do you think? And all I could say was something stupid like, that's it. I didn't say anything like, oh, you look beautiful. And I just go, oh, that's it. So it was like, you know, her face drained. I drained. Nothing was going my way. It was like, the guy who was going to avoid mistakes at all cost is making them left and right. We get in the back seat. We decide we're going to drive to the school. It's late at night. I'm sitting in the back seat. Meanwhile, my moment of panic starts to build to the point where my stomach starts to growl, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, I'm going to get sick. And as I'm in the back seat, and she's sitting next to me, and Mr. Studd's driving with his girlfriend, and I'm in the back, and I'm thinking, just get to the school. All of a sudden, my nose started to bleed. Now I've got blood coming down my nose. And I didn't, I didn't want to just shout from the back seat, I'm bleeding to death back here. Somebody stop. What am I going to do? So I'm just going, and I'm trying to lean back, and, and I'm trying not to make any noise. And I'm bleeding, and my, my blood's, of course, going down my throat. And so I'm swallowing it, and I'm trying to act cool, but I'm in the back seat bleeding. Finally, we get to the school. I race into the bathroom. My stomach is a wreck. I run to the, to uh, to the sink. Bud, of course, I'm trying to clean my nose. I got blood everywhere. And my sweater is baking my body, you know, so now it won't, it won't stop bleeding. And everybody comes in. And now I'm, I'm, in the guy, I'm the guy in the sink bleeding to death. Everybody else is walking by. Oh, what are, Bowen, what are you doing in there? Oh, you're bleeding. It was like, I, it, was, it was my... So finally, I just... My body rebelled, and everything in me decided it wanted to be out of me. And I just was going to lose it. I literally just raced over to the payphone, called my mom, Mom, come get me. My mom showed up. I, I sprinted to the curb, hugged the curb as long as I could without losing control of my bodily parts. So I don't want to tell you what happened. And my mom took me home, and I felt great. I was felt grand. We watched TV. I had popcorn. It was a great night. The girl never talked to me again. I didn't go on a date for a long time after that. My brother gave up. He felt that if trying to serve God was anything like my dad, it wasn't worth the effort. You can't please someone like that. And he just said, I can't do that. And I spent most of my childhood and my young adult years trying to figure out what do I have to do to please my dad. When I pray in the morning, I, always t- I might have told you before, I walk around my dining room table and I just talk to the Lord. And I have learned that I just spend time talking to my God. 
And I've got to the point where many times I've just asked the Lord, God, I just want to know what you think. I just want to know what you think. I want to be able to figure it out. I don't want to judge my relationship with my dad. My relationship with my heavenly father is the same. They're different. In Luke 9, Jesus sends the disciples out. It's an interesting set of circumstances that happen. I'll read it. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave that, their town and shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now, you've got to imagine. I've, I've had this happen in Cambodia. When there's an accident, all it takes is, and I've had more than one accident. I forgot how many I've had. One time I had a five-car pileup. The car in front of me stopped. I stopped. If the next four cars or three cars behind me hit, bang, 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 bang. Pretty soon there's all five of us all piled up in one accident. In seconds, people race from, I don't know where they show up. Where do they come from? And so I've been in accidents where somebody would zig, I would zag, and boom, they'd go down. And before I could get out of the car door, there's 40 people standing there. Where did you guys come from? They should come racing up. There's an accident. The disciples are in a position to preach the word of God, and they are praying for people to be healed. Evil spirits are being cast out. I promise you, they drew a crowd. And there was people running up there that wanted to see it. They wanted to experience it. There was people who wanted to be healed. There was no hope. Many of those people, didn't, they had given up. They didn't know what else to do. And so there you got some guys who are praying for people to receive from God good things. And right after that, in verse 40, I can't get my glasses. I think it's 46. It is 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. You got a bunch of guys who are praying for people to be healed, casting out demons, preaching the word of God, and just move down a little bit down the farther in the, in the chapter. And you got John saying, hey, you know, did you see that guy that I prayed for? His eyes literally just boom. He could see all of a sudden. And Peter goes, no. Did you see the fact that when I touched this guy, his arm just showed up, even though it was all shriveled up? That was pretty incredible, don't you think? And, and, and James is over here going, no, 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 no. I saw that little crowd over there with you guys. The crowd that was in front of me was so big that when I just even accidentally put my arm towards them, half of them got healed, and I didn't even realize it until after the fact. Man, God was with me. Can you imagine they're arguing back and forth, trying to outdo each other. These are the same guys that God had just used to do the miraculous. And now, if I sat in a board meeting and we were arguing back and forth over which one of us was greater, Pastor Brad would be choking us at the end of that one. Why are you guys even saved? I can see it now. But let's see what Jesus did. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little girl, a child, and set him, met him, let him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you will be the greatest. All he did was, you know, these guys are going, they're, they're hiding the fact, obviously, that they've been doing this. Jesus just, I'm sure, very quietly, come here, son, grabs this little guy, come here. And just sets him down in front of the disciples and says, you want to see what the greatest is? Be like this little guy. That's it. No beating them up. No verbally attacking them. No, what's wrong with you people? I thought I taught you this already. No. Just set a kid in front of them. This is where it's at. Right after that, in verse 49, Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Well, let's see. Let me get this right, John. Demon 
in someone bad. Demon left in someone still bad. Demon out of someone good. What part of that don't you understand, John? But he's not one of us. What? What do you call that? Denominationalism? Kind of an elitism? He's not picked. He's not special. He's not one of the chosen. He can't do that. He's not one of us. Kind of an arrogance. Kind of a boastful. The kind of thing that would drive you crazy if you were, if, if you were working with that kind of guy or working with, that, with those disciples. But what did Jesus do? Let's take a look. All he says is, don't stop him, Jesus said. Whatever not is against you is for you. That's it? That's the best you can do, Jesus? You didn't hammer them? You didn't pull them aside and go, what is wrong with you? No. All he says is, no, 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 don't stop them. If they're not against this, they're for us. And let's move on. Well, let's see. Let's go to verse 51. At, this, at the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? That works. That's what I call a salvation message. (laughs) Kill them all, God. If they don't repent, if they don't accept you, just kill them all. I think I saw that as uh, in the Bible class 101. Wasn't that offered, Pastor Brad? (laughs) When all all else fails, pray down, call down fire in heaven. Just kill them all. That works. Everybody would get saved real fast in that service. What? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> you got to laugh. Can you imagine that happening at a Bible school? Somebody stands up and says, God gave me a message. We have to kill everybody here who's not saved. We're going to call down fire from heaven. You can't dream that one up, but that's exactly what they said. Now, You can imagine this. Their their anger drove them to want to do something with the power of God. It wasn't their compassion on them. It was their anger. You don't accept Jesus? Strike him dead, God. They weren't even motivated by the right thing. And you have to laugh at this. My response Get out your scrolls, reread the chapter on Sermon on the Mount. You guys are fired. You're all on 60-day probation. None of you can be entrusted in ministry. You're finished. What? (laughs) No. (laughs) Jesus basically, he says, uh, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Probably there's something of the the line of, what? No, that's not what we're going to do. Enough of that. And then it says, Jesus turned, rebuked them, and then he and his disciples went to another village. Let's just move on. And so what is Jesus' response after major catastrophes and character flaws of arrogance, pride, one, uh, me, me, I'm more important than everybody else? Let's look at Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out. That works. <laughs> We've got a bunch of guys who's... I wouldn't, I'm not even sure they're saved. Their lives are such a mess. Now, you know, I'm joking about that. But you know what I'm saying? These guys are just doing, let's kill them all, God. They're boastful. They're arrogant. They're, they're just doing stuff that you just would just make you cringe. And what does Jesus do? Send out 70 others who probably he has less confidence in and less of an investment in than the first 12 that he just sent. Go get them. He sends them out. 70 of them. You can imagine what kind of a wrecking crew they were going out, but they were preaching, they were healing, they were casting out demons, and he said, go get them. Isn't it ironic? Ministry, Jesus used to refine 
his disciples. We often think we can't be used. We need to be refined first and then we can do ministry. But God used ministry to refine his people. We think the, the end result is ministry. But the truth is the end result is that we are more like him. And so we kind of put the cart before the horse. First John four. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in, in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13. You guys have heard this before. I just want to read this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, if God is love, I'm going to change out that word. Reread this, 1 Corinthians 13 again. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no records of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. And God always perseveres. We are very good at finding fault with ourselves, We are very good at self-analyzing ourselves to the point where we are paralyzed. We are afraid to do anything for the kingdom. We're so afraid of making a mistake. The truth is, I spent most of my childhood and many of my adult years just trying to avoid making mistakes. That was my mission in life. I never realized that as God helped me to understand and mature. He wanted me to make mistakes. What do you mean? I want you to make mistakes. One of the things that drove me crazy when you run an orphanage is you make a lot of mistakes. One time we had, uh, we had pigs. And I wanted the kids at the orphanage to learn how to raise pigs. So I came up with this bright idea that we were going to buy baby pigs, we were going to feed them, and they would raise pigs, and they would learn how to uh, take care of pigs and everybody would make money. We'd all be happy. So we started with two pigs and it worked really well. We had baby pigs become big pigs and we sold them. And the kids that, that the two boys who had bought the first pig had made money and we all looked good. So the next time I, everybody was like, Oh my gosh, we want to have pigs. So I go to the market and I buy 10 baby pigs within a week. Eight of them are dead. And I'm like, Oh, how come this isn't working? And I'm so frustrated. I'm like, God, why is it that every time I try something like this, I fail? And the Lord was said to me, you have to fail because they want to see what happens to somebody after they pick up the pieces. And they're not going to know if they don't watch it happen in you. And so I realized, okay, God, if I have to make mistakes to grow and to learn, I'm okay with that. So I made lots of mistakes. I hate to say it, but I killed a lot of animals too. <laughs> I want to do something this morning that might make you uncomfortable and that you, to the point where you're thinking to myself, I can't do that. I'm afraid. What I want to do this morning is I want to pray for people to be healed just like the disciples did. Sometimes we need emotional healing. Sometimes we need financial healing. Sometimes we need spiritual healing. We don't even know the Lord. Sometimes we need to be healed in our bodies. And there's a lot of things that God wants to do in his people. 
the disciples just did what he told them to do. They just, he said, just go do it. And so we, I want to do that this morning, even though you may feel unqualified. And so here's what I'm going to do. And I, I know you're going to feel uncomfortable, but so what? Get used to it. Stand up, if you would, please. I would like, if you would like the Lord to bring healing in your life, and I, don't, I, I just want to tell you again, either physical healing, a spiritual healing, emotional, financial, I don't care what it is. If you want the God of the universe who created heaven and earth to bring healing in your life, I, I'm convinced there many times in the Bible, there's stories of people who showed up and said, it's not for me, it's for my daughter. It's not for me, it's for my servant. And Jesus just spoke the word and they were healed even though they weren't there. And so I know there are many people here that need to be healed, that there are a, a whole slew of things where God wants to minister to you. And so the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is have the courage to ask. If you would like the Lord to minister a healing for you, I would like you to come stand at this altar and stand right up here. Come on. Don't be afraid. Try to make room because we're going to do some other things. Try to string out if you would. Now here's what I'm going to do. I want imperfect people, people who are afraid, people who are going to make mistakes, people who have never done it before, people who are like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could ever do that. I want to challenge you if you are never, let me say it this way, if you are not accustomed to praying for people to be healed, you are the person I want. I want you to come and lay hands on the very people who are here, even though you are afraid. Trust me, I have learned walking by faith is spelled R-I-S-K. If you are willing to risk it, God will use you and bless the very people that are standing right here. If you would like to be a part of that, come up here. Come on. Try to find one person to put your hands on and pray for. I would like you to specifically ask them, What specifically do you want the Lord to do for you? I want you to ask them specifically. If it's a physical healing, an emotional healing, if there's something, I want you to ask specifically. Come on, we need some more help up here. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Come on. You guys act like you haven't got legs. Come on up here. I want you to pray for these people up here. We have lots of people. Come on, you guys. You're not dead. Come on up here. Come on. You guys pray up here. We got lots of people that want to be prayed for. All I want you to do, lay hands on him and begin to pray for him. Ash, he's going to start to sing. We're going to close the service by just spending time at the altar. We are going to pray. We are going to seek the Lord. And we are going to wait upon God and expect good things from him. That's why we're here. It's for his glory. We want to wait upon him and receive from him. That's it. And it's imperfect people that God wants to use. Just put your hands on him and begin to pray for him. Ask him, pray. Come on. I want to hear you pray for him. Put your hands on them. Begin to pray for them. Come on up here. We need some more help. Hands on them. Pray for them. Don't be afraid.
worship Him. The altar is always open.
something a little unusual here. I'm going to ask you to sit down for a minute. That's something the Lord, I believe, wants me to say to you. Two things. This is not because I don't think what Mark done is sufficient. I praise God for that message and that call. But, but just two things, two requests. First, first request is this. A lot of people came up here to be prayed for. Physical, emotional, relational, maybe for somebody else to pray for somebody else. God touched you in a miraculous way or if he touches those that you've prayed for and you get word of that, would you please pass that along? If that happened today, don't leave here without telling somebody that that happened. You see, I would even go so far as to say that the healing is not the main goal. The main goal is that God would be glorified. And so we need to exalt him when we ask him to do something and he steps out and does what we ask him to do in a miraculous way. We should be telling people about the power of God that is alive and well today right now. So I'm, I'm encouraging you to do that. If that happened to you this morning, now I'm convinced that we asked and God moved. And so if that happened this morning, tell somebody. I'd like that eventually to get to the office. You send an email or something. I want to tell the body about that. We want to put that out uh, through the prayer chain so that, you know what happens when we ask and God responds and we hear about it? What happens to our faith? Our faith grows, and what do we do then? We're willing to take some more risks. We're willing to say, hey, man, that, that risk was worth it. I'm, I'm going to ask some more, and then God just continues to get glorified. Here's the second thing I want to ask you to do, and I want to set it up with this. And by the way, Mark, thank you so much for just your courage to do what God was telling you to do and ask us to ask the great God for great things. Moses. Moses led a large group of slaves out of Egypt into the wilderness. And God said to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a tabernacle. And I've given you some guys that are skilled to do it, and I want it built exactly like I tell you, precisely like I tell you. And here's what it's going to be for. I am going to meet with the people at the tabernacle. It's going to be a place where you can come and meet with me. And so they built the tabernacle, and there was, as God had ordered it and ordained it to be, there was an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard, and then an inner sanctum, a holy of holies. Now, I want you to just consider one day a year, the high holy day of the year, the day of atonement. Critical day when the wrath of God would be turned aside from his people. The high priest on that day would bring a sacrifice to the gate of the outer court, and he would slaughter that sacrifice there and catch the blood of that sacrifice in a basin. And then he would take that blood with him into the outer court, through the outer court, into the inner court. And he would come up right to the inner sanctum, to the Holy of Holies, where the veil hung. A veil that was four inches thick. A veil that was unterrible. A veil that took 400 priests to move around when they traveled in the wilderness. And the high priest would come up to that veil with the blood of the sacrificial animal. And one day a year, and only one day a year, was he allowed to enter into the inner sanctum. And only he could enter to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would come into the inner sanctum, and that was incredible room there. It had the Ark of the Covenant there, a golden chest, and inside of that chest were three items. There was a copy of the Ten Commandments in the chest. And there was a golden jar of manna. And there was the rod, the staff of Aaron, the high priest that got it appointed. Now, what were those items? Well, the Ten Commandments were the law of God. And what had they done? They had broken the law of God. The golden jar of manna was God's provision as they wandered in the wilderness. And what had they done? with God's provision. They had griped and complained 
about God's provision. And then what have they done with God's selected, ordained leadership? They had rejected it and tried to put in place their own. And God said, all of you bring your staffs, and the staff that buds will be the identification of the leader I have chosen. That's why Aaron's staff that had budded, a dead stick that had budded was there. So in the ark, there were three elements of their sin. There was the law of God that they had broken, the provision of God that they had grumbled and complained about and the leadership of God that they had rejected. And there was a covering over the ark called the seat of propitiation. And right above the cover, there was a bright light that hovered over the seat of propitiation or the seat of mercy. There was a Shekinah light that was the visible manifest presence of God that hovered there in the inner sanctum. And what the high priest would do is he'd come in behind the veil on that one day a year and he would pour the blood of that sacrificed animal on top of the lid, on top of the seat of propitiation, the mercy seat. So that now God looking down seeing the broken law and the rejected provision and the rejected leadership, the sin of the people. Now between their sinfulness and God's manifest presence, now there was the blood. And that blood would cause God for one more year to turn aside his wrath and not destroy them. Jesus hanging on the cross. When he bowed his head in death, what does the gospel writer say happened to the veil? It was torn in two from top. The unterrible veil was torn in two from top to bottom. So that what God was saying was, there is no barrier now. That if you come by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can enter right into the inner sanctum, into the place where the manifest presence of God dwells. That it's, the, the curtain is still torn. The veil is still broken from top to bottom. And so here is the application for us. I'm concerned that we me, we, we come to church week after week and we kind of, in a sense, walk into the outer court and we walk through the outer court, even into the inner court, and we kind of peek around the corner and we say, oh, look, look, the veil is still torn. Hallelujah. Praise God. And we go home glad that the veil is still torn. But what do we not do? We don't come into the inner sanctum. And the entire purpose was to open the way so that we would come all the way in to the manifest presence of God. That's the purpose. I think when we meet together, and I want you to know, we as a staff pray this every week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at our prayer times, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, there's about 40-some people together right here, and we're praying for this. We're praying that God would manifest his presence right here among us. I think God wants to do that. I believe he sent his son to die on the cross so that that would happen when we come together. That we don't have to peek around the corner and say, oh, praise God, he's still over there. That we could come right into his presence. That he wants us to do that. That we should push in and seek that out and pursue it. Asking God to do that, to, to manifest his glory in ways that we could not even imagine. Every Sunday, I think that's the invitation, even the initiative of God to call us to do that. So here's the second thing I want to ask you to do. Week by week, would you be praying for that? What people need, it's great for us to come and be together. It is powerful for us to do that. What we ultimately need is we need to meet with God here. 
And so would you be praying? Specifically, I want to encourage you to do this. By the way, you're always welcome to come at 9 o'clock and gather with this group of people that prays on the stage here. But right across the hallway, I can see the door and the sign on the door from here. There's a room called the prayer room right across, across the hallway. And we have a lady here at this church by request months ago just goes to that room, one of the services every Sunday morning, and prays for what's taking place in here. My longing is that every Sunday morning at the 930 service, that some of you would come to that service to go in there to pray for the service that's going on. Then you can come in here and attend at 1130. And some of you come in here at 930 and then commit to going over there at 1130 so that that room over there is filled with people every time we're meeting together that are crying out upon God to show up in powerful ways and reveal his glory in the midst of our services. So I'm calling you to do that. I'm asking you to just come to go in there. That's a room designated for you and ask God to do what only God can do. Exhibit his excellence, reveal his glory, move in power, do the miraculous when we meet together. I believe he wants that to happen. He wants to glorify himself in that way. So I'm asking you to do that. Now you can stand. Please, I'm just going to dismiss you. Father, thank you, God. Thank you for meeting with us here today. Thank you for your power that is alive and well. Have your way in us, God, and help us to be people who believe you for great things and step out and risk to see you step in in power in Christ's name. Amen.